This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Scott Cunningham and is part four of our Lent 2017 series. We read this passage every year during Lent. So this is John 9. And Val just read the whole thing, which wasn't that awesome. Don't you want it to just keep on going? Let's just do that. Uh, just, you know. I thought I knew this story, but um, as I've had the privilege to work with this past couple weeks, man, it has absolutely captured my imagination. Uh, on the one hand, I've come to realize that this story, which is all the Bible really, but sometimes you, you actually remember it, this story is a literary masterpiece. I'm talking like of Shakespearean proportions. There's so many moving parts and characters and undercurrents, and yet at the same time, it's really simple and really cohesive. And on the other hand, when you squeeze this story like an orange, the, what it produces uh, is this precious, challenging message. It's amazing. So that's why we read the whole thing. You can't cut parts out of it. It's one story, um, and that's what we want to come under this morning. And because the drama is so critical to the message, I actually want us to walk back through this and do something a little different as if we were reading a play. So... I've divided this story up into five acts, like a Shakespearean play, which I learned actually does have five acts, I think. Um, so anyways, five acts. I've given it the super awesome blockbuster title, The Battle of the Blind. Okay, so we're, we're going to spend a good chunk of our time in this story, and I want us to get our hands under this drama. So grab your Bible, grab your bulletin. You have it all in front of you for a reason. I want you to walk with me through this. Here we go. Act one, Jesus spits and sets the stage. This is verses one to seven. So this whole story begins when Jesus and his disciples are walking around and they see a man who was born blind. And in that day and age, if you were physically impaired in any way, like being blind, people assumed that you did something wrong or somebody in your family did and God was punishing you for it. So look at verse two. His disciples ask him, and this sets the whole thing up. They say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice it's not a question of if, it's just who. Who sinned? Who's at fault here? But Jesus basically responds, he's not blind because someone sinned. And then he says in verse 3, he's in this state so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, not only does Jesus, in that small statement, completely reject the widely held belief that the world works on the basis of karma, whatever you do happens to you and all that stuff, he's also setting the stage for this whole story in a really important way. When Jesus says, it's so that the works of God might be displayed in him, that word that's translated as be displayed means to reveal or to make manifest. John, this author, loves this word. He uses it all the time. So it's like Jesus is saying this. He's not blind because somebody sinned. He's blind so that God can teach you something about who he is right now. Which is a pretty amazing statement. And then he spits on the ground, makes mud, anoints the man's eyes, tells him to go wash, and he comes back seeing and then as far as this story is concerned, Jesus drops the mic and walks off stage. So he pieces out. And that's act one. 
Act 2. The people are puzzled. Okay, this is verses 8 to 17. Act 2 is basically two groups of people who are struggling to figure out what in the world just happened. The first are his neighbors, and I imagine these people like George and Jerry from Seinfeld. They're his neighbors. They're like, hey, who's this guy? It's the blind guy. He's like, no, it's not. He can see. He's like, no, but it is. He's like, no, he just looks like him. And the guy's like, it is actually me. Everything's always funnier if you can imagine it's a Seinfeld episode. And that's what I've done with this. So his neighbors have no idea how to compute this, basically. Uh, They've got no category for it. They're like, well, the Pharisees, they're super smart. They're the religious people. Let's just, they know how to interpret stuff and talk about stuff. Let's take them to them. They go to the Pharisees, um, and for reasons we'll soon discover, the Pharisees are immediately threatened. Immediately. They don't like all the hoopla that's happening around Jesus. And so they do what humans do best, which is to grope for a technicality to dismiss the whole thing. And what they grope for and land on is, ah, he did it on the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath. We understand the laws of Sabbath in this way. Therefore, he doesn't matter. The whole thing is, you know, a moot point. We can all go home, you know, like, done. But not everybody's convinced, which leads to Act 3, which I'm calling the parents and the proof. And this is verses 18 to 23. The conundrum gets stickier here for everyone involved because in order to set the facts straight, they invite the parents of this man to come and testify. Hey, is this your son? And was he actually born blind? And the parents say in verse 20, basically this, I'm paraphrasing, but yes, he's our son and was born blind, but we've got no idea who or what happened to him that now he can see. He's a grown up. Why don't you ask him? In verse 22, John kind of takes us behind the scenes and lets us know what's going on in the undercurrent here a little bit more. Basically, the Jews had all agreed that if anyone said that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be cast out. And casting out, don't think just like kicked out of the church building. Cast out means excommunicated. means you are a part of this community that everything is held together by, and we are disowning you. So the parents know that, and they are speaking very, they're treading lightly, right? If you have kids, this would be like you walking to your car and being cornered by the New York Times and Fox News during this last election because your daughter said something politically sensitive, okay? That's gone viral. So cameras are shoved in your face, mics are shoved in your face, there's somebody ready to live tweet every single thing you say, SNL's getting ready to mock you on Saturday, like everything's set up. They're like, what do you think about what your daughter said? And this would be like you saying, listen, all I know is that Hillary and Donald actually are running for president. (laughs) But other than that, I have no opinions, I have no ideas, nothing is happening in my brain. (laughs) She is my daughter, but that's it. (laughs) As dumb as an illustration as that is, that's kind of what's happening here. Rather than rejoicing over their son's sight, they chose to preserve their own reputation. And essentially implied, by the way, we would rather our son be excommunicated than us. But for all of their self-preservation, they did actually give proof that something just happened because it's their son and he was born blind. Which leads us to Act 4, the final debate. Okay, this is verses 24 to 33. 
After realizing there's undeniable proof, the Pharisees give a last effort to kind of make this whole thing go away. So they say in verse 24, basically, okay, own up to it. Give glory to God as a way of saying, like, come on, confess it. This guy's a sinner. But the man won't, which is when he gives his really powerful, all I know is I was blind and now I see. And then he starts to get a little sassy with the Pharisees in verse 27. I love this guy. He's one of my favorite characters in John. So he says, man, why are you guys so obsessed with this story? Oh, wait a second, I get it. Do you want to be his disciples? I bet you do, basically. I mean, he's just poking them. And then the Pharisees get so mad at that statement that they lash out, and for better or worse, they really show their cards of what's going on in their heart. So look at verse 28 and 29 with me. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. But as for this man... We do not know where he comes from. Now, what do they mean by that? I love military history. And uh, in my limited reading and, and listening of military history, I've noticed this trend. There's always these moments during a battle, particularly a long and ferocious one, where the generals and the high-ranking officers and everybody get together in the map room to try to figure out what to do next. And all these officers have their own histories, right? Some guys are Air Force guys, some guys are artillery guys, some guys are cavalry guys. And guess what? Regardless of what has been working or not, nine times out of 10, maybe 10 times out of 10, these guys usually suggest as the solution to the battle exactly what their specialty is. On the one hand, because it's what they know, but on the other hand, because that's where the glory lies in it for them. I've heard story after story. After the last service, a couple guys came up to me and just started listing generals that have cost men so many lives because they were blinded by their egos to see any other option. If someone on the other side of the map room was going to suggest something, um, usually these guys would do everything to discredit the person, discredit their solution, because where is the glory for them in that option? Now, go back to verse 28 and 29 real quick. Let's read that again. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Translation, we're Moses people. We have high rank in the Moses world. We've paid our dues. We have authority in the Moses world. And the Moses world is Team God, and we're on that team. Jesus, this person that you guys are all talking about, we don't know where he comes from. He's not pushing our agenda. We have no stock in his, you know, public stock. We don't have any hold in that. A couple chapters after this in John 12, John clarifies this even further, talking about this dynamic. And he says of these guys, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So do you see what's going on here? In this whole situation, the Pharisees only have two categories. One, you're on team God, which is their team, the Moses team, that they have a stake in. Or number two, you aren't, and you're obviously, therefore, a sinner. The problem, what makes this story so delightful, is that Jesus did something only God can do, and they had nothing to do with it. So there's no category, there's no file on like the desktop of their hearts 
for them to drag and drop that sucker into. And the witty guy, the sassy, awesome dude, notices this, and he exploits it. He sees the inconsistency. So look at verse 30 with me. And I can't help reading this with a little bit of sarcasm. He says in verse 30, Why, this is an amazing thing. Like, well, looky here. Golly gee whiz. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Duh, everybody gets that. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And at that, like generals in the map room, they, you know, gnash their teeth, they broaden their chest, and they spit at him. You were born in utter sin. Remember, the whole story starts with people saying, this guy obviously is a sinner because he's blind, so who did it? And Jesus says, no, that's wrong. And basically what the Pharisees are doing is picking that card right back up and taking a low blow at him and saying, Jesus was wrong. You are blind because you or your parents sinned. It's true. And then they excommunicate him from the community. It's harsh. Act five, the final mic drop. If you're new to the Bible, Jesus drops the mic a lot in the Gospels, and it's awesome. This is verses 35 to 41. At this point in the story, the the tension has risen, cracked, and, and released. The sun is kind of setting on the drama. And it's here that Jesus comes back on stage because he heard the man whom he healed got excommunicated. He finds him and says in verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? Like, what do you think? And to that question, the man shows complete openness. Just saying basically, man, you tell me where he is and I will believe in him right now. So Jesus responds using very choice language in verse 37, if you're looking at it. You have seen him. You've seen him. It's he who's speaking to you. And the man immediately falls down and says, I believe, and he worships him. And then Jesus gives what I think is his thesis statement for this whole chapter in verse 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And then, as the story tells it, it's almost like the Pharisees are in the same, like, marketplace, and they just hear him talking about this. And they start picking up what he's laying down, and they go, wait a second, Are you seriously trying to suggest that we, we are the blind ones? And if I was directing this as a film or a play, I would have a very pregnant pause here. And I picture Jesus just kind of pause with a deep expression of grief and pain at that question. And then I think out of that grief, he concludes this whole story by saying, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. And that word translated as guilt is really sin. So really what it reads is, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you say, we see, and I hear his just heart breaking right here, your sin remains. And with that, he drops the mic again, and the curtains are drawn. So ends the battle of the blind. The lesson that Jesus wants us to swallow from the story, distilled and reduced, is this. It's really simple. We are blind because of our sin, but Jesus 
can open our eyes. We're blind because of our sin, but Jesus can open our eyes. Think about it. The story opens with people wrongly thinking that the blind man is blind because of sin. And it ends as a mirror image of the first. It ends with Jesus confirming that the Pharisees are actually those blind because of sin. We're blind because of our sin. We're all like crusty, obstinate generals in the map room. Our pride, our desires, our selfishness, those things cram and blot out our vision to see and accurately know one another in the world, but also, most importantly, to see and know God in Jesus Christ. What blinds us is not lack of knowledge, according to this text from Jesus. What blinds us is not lack of exposure. What blinds us is our sin. But the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus can open our eyes. That's why he came. That's why he was born of Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and rose again is so he could spit in the mud, make some mud, anoint your eyes, and give you and me vision. We're blind because of our sin, but Jesus can open our eyes. Now, to this super simple truth, there are two reactions, and they're both here in this story the blind man's and the Pharisees. And I want to talk about the, the blind man's first. So on my wife and I's honeymoon, um, I decided to go surfing. And since I mainly grew up in Tennessee and Texas, I was not a surfer. Let's just put it that way. Um, but, so I had no, like, you know, I wasn't going to, like, try to act like I was good at surfing. I'd, like, never done it before. But by the time you get down to the beach and everybody's so cool and you rent a board and, like, you know, Bob Marley's playing in the background, I just started acting like I knew what I was doing because I wanted to look cool. Um, so I'm like hiding the rental, you know, like sticker on my surfboard and stuff and paddle out to all the other cool surfers and like, what's up guys, you know, let's own some waves here. <laughs> but everyone could tell that I was a tourist, first of all, because I was horrifically pasty white because I lived in, Whe in Wheaton. And second, surfboards have this strap that straps onto your ankle and I strapped it onto my wrist like a boogie board <laughs> from like elementary school. And so as I'm just like sitting there, everybody else is like, who is this kid? Like, what in the world is going on? All that to say, uh, I didn't want anybody's help. I didn't want to ask anybody, like, how do you surf? And so the first wave came, and I absolutely got, like, demolished. So again and again and again, I got crushed, until finally this sweet woman, who was probably in her 60s and 70s, who was, like, the greatest surf I've ever seen, came up next to me and just started screaming at me what to do. Like, jump up, paddle faster, like, now, like, all this stuff. And at that point, I was completely open. I was like, man, Bring all the, you know, recommendations for surfing. You've got to have no pride anymore. Like, I've realized, yeah, my ways, basically. We spend so much, so much of our life, like me at the beginning of surfing. So much. But this guy, if you look at verse 38 and 39 at the end, he shows complete openness and receptivity. He sees and worships Jesus with no hindrance. There's no pride or ego in his way. It's just beautiful, fluid obedience. I just love this guy. I love Jesus' interaction with him. The second response to that truth, however, is from the Pharisees. And as we've learned, they don't like what he's laying down at all. They had put so much effort into being wise and religious that it made it impossible for them to admit, number one, 
that they were actually blind, and number two, that Jesus was the solution and not them. Jesus did not want the Pharisees to stay blind in their sin. He does not. That's why he came. That's why he was there. But that's why it's so heartbreaking, because they won't budge. They won't budge. Now, with those two reactions in mind, the blind man's reaction and the Pharisee's reaction, let's read verse 39 one more time. So this is really important. Grab your bulletin in your Bible and read this with me. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus is saying, when I walk into a room, I elicit those two responses. Just by my work and my words and the nature of who I am, those who know they are completely blinded and in need, when I walk into a room, immediately run to me, fall at my feet, and receive sight. But those who think they see and who do not confess and repent of their blindness tragically, tragically receive what they want, which is to refuse the option of sight and be confirmed in their blindness. So Jesus walks into a room and quickly divides it. Notice there's no gray area in verse 39. No, but some people who have partial vision can sit out of the distance and rationally, rationally or like mystically assess what I'm saying. There's no room for that. You either run to Jesus with complete obedience and complete need, or you reject his teaching. Now, as I've been chewing on this and just sitting with this passage and those two responses kind of like bubbles came up to the surface. I just kind of lived with it for a while for the past week or so. And one night I was laying in bed watching the ceiling fan spin around and just thinking about this. Just like, man, the, the blind man's so open to it and receptive and the, the Pharisees, they just can't, they just won't budge. And very clearly, the Holy Spirit gripped me just laying in bed and the Lord said to me, what's your response? This is for you, buddy. What do you think? And let me tell you, I have dropped every stone of judgment that I was carrying with me, thinking about this, engaging with it, because I've realized how dangerously, dangerously prone I am to this. I don't want people in a meeting with res staff to think I don't know everything. I mean, I, and if that's true, how much more about my whole life so this has really been convicting to me about how I respond to, to the message of Jesus. So what about you? Do you identify with the Pharisees? Do you identify with the blind man? I want to leave us with three questions to take with us, to help us in our own self-reflection of this. Number one, do you have a relationship with your own blindness? That's an odd question. Do you have a relationship with your own blindness? In other words, are you familiar, acquainted with your own blindness? Or try this. When was the last time somebody told you that you were wrong or you didn't see the full picture? How did that go? Was that a surprise? Or think about it another way. Remember the, the Pharisees encounter this beautiful act and movement of God but grope for a technicality to find a reason to reject it. 
Do you ever find yourself like me in the presence of something God is doing, groping for a technicality so that you can dismiss it? I'm trying to think of how many times I've groped for like, oh, oh, that was a bad interpretation of that Greek word. Or you might think they use Greek when they're talking, which means they're just an intellectual, which means they don't know anything about Jesus in the first place. Or this is just emotional. Or this is whatever. We have a real propensity for that. If you don't consider yourself a Christian and you're just here visiting, are you open to acknowledging your own limitations and seeking help from Jesus? And for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, we need to recognize that it's not the irreligious who have trouble digesting this message. It's the religious. Right? Notice the sharp part of this sword falls towards the church in this passage. We come to Jesus with our blindness. He heals our sight. But then sometimes we can go on to study the Bible for years and years and years. We might even get a couple degrees in those things, for goodness sake. And then one day we think, man, I've got 20-20. I see perfectly well. I'm so glad that I'm this smart or this spiritually deep. We get to that point where we no longer want to be seen or understood as a sinner. And at that point, we're just confirmed in our blindness. We might be devotees of the Christian religion, but we won't be able to see Jesus. I found this Martin Luther quote this week that I absolutely love. It says this, Beware of ever aspiring to such purity that do you not want to seem to yourself or to be a sinner. For Christ dwells only in sinners. Love that. Do you have a relationship with your own blindness? Number two, do you regularly allow for rough edges in your reading of God's word? Do you regularly allow for rough edges in your reading of God's word? If our sight is blinded by our sinfulness and our finite humanity, right? And if the Lord is without sin and sees everything and knows everything, then we're assuming that God's word is 2020 and that we are not. And that means that for every single one of us, there will be times where our intuition about ourselves, about the world, those intuitions will come up against a disconnect with the Word of God, with a rough edge that kind of rubs us the wrong way. Do you allow for those rough edges? Do you welcome them? Do you live with them? I was eating breakfast with a few friends this week, and we were talking about how these rough edges are a sign of life in your walk with the Lord. There are a lot of booths out there in the marketplace of the world that would love to take away all the rough edges from Scripture. It can make it go down like honey. And that's all based on us thinking that we're 2020 and the Bible's a little, you know, near farsighted on some things. The enemy would love for us to think that we know better, that we are the ones who have vision, that the Lord's Word is the one that doesn't, or that He doesn't. The enemy would love that. But that's just confirming us in our blindness when we think like that. Do you regularly allow for rough edges in your reading of God's word? And last one, number three. Are you consistently growing in your vision and worship of Jesus? Let me explain what I mean by that. This is kind of the most important one. 
What is it the blind man ends up seeing in this story and the Pharisees cannot see? That Jesus is Lord. It's not morals, it's not laws, it's the Lord. Peter, Paul, the men on the road to Emmaus, all the stories in Scripture, when, when the scales fall off someone's eyes, the vision they get is of Jesus, of Christ. It's not just knowledge, it's not just a realization, um, you know, like, oh, he's here. It's this deep vision, this spiritual vision of who the Lord is that leads to worship and submission and joy and transformation. You can have a thousand degrees in biblical studies that don't lead to that because degrees don't require confession. You can be the most spiritual person in the world, logged more than, you know, thousands and thousands of centering prayer times that don't necessarily lead to that if it's not involved with confession. So the question for us to chew on is what is our current Christian walk with God producing? Knowledge? A vague sense of self-understanding or wholeness? Or is it giving us consistently, consistently a deeper, broader, more beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, which leads us to that fluid, beautiful worship and obedience and transformation. It's my prayer uh, this morning that the Holy Spirit would convict each of us, me and you, in the way that we need to be convicted. And if you're like, okay, I get it, but like, how does this actually pan out? Like, what do I do? I think 1 John, this passage that was actually at the end of the, the Ten Commandments in our liturgy, sums up the message of this story and also our response in this beautiful, simple way. So this is 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. This all boils down to understanding our own unfaithfulness and believing and knowing deep in our hearts that Jesus is faithful to forgive and cleanse us. This is the gospel. God moves towards us to spit in the ground, make mud, anoint your eyes, and give you vision to cleanse you. We are blind, but Jesus opens our eyes. Repent and believe in the gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.